This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by R.J. Rushduni. Chapter 37, Confession and Liberation. Deuteronomy 28 tells us that faithfulness to God's law leads to irresistible blessing which shall come upon us and overtake us from Deuteronomy 28.2, whereas disobedience leads to irresistible curses from Deuteronomy 28.15. Sin must be dealt with. It is the condition of man's being, a revelation of his inner nature, and no cosmetics can remove or cover it. Modern man compounds his sin by failing to take them seriously. In God's sight, sin is, in essence, anomia, lawlessness. This is man's original sin. It is the mark of fallen man. Sin as hamatia is missing the mark, or falling short. It normally refers to specific sins rather than to a general lawlessness. In either case, sin must be dealt with. There are two extremes with regard to sin. The Hindu view of karma sees sin as a burden which can only be expiated with endless reincarnations. Hinduism does not produce good works because the expiation of sins is personal and egocentric. It assumes a capability on man's part which does not exist. At the other extreme is the kind of sinner described in Proverbs 30.20. Quote, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. End quote. Sin is not seen as having consequences any greater than a little food on the corner of one's mouth. It is easily wiped off with no repercussions. So too, sin is regarded as a trifle, not to be taken seriously. Today, in many churches, sin is taken very casually. Love should prevail, and love should lead to forgiveness of sins. This is humanism. If sin meant the cross for Christ on our behalf, it is no light matter, and to treat it as such is to show contempt for Christ. But too many who profess to believe the whole word of God dismiss sin by saying, it's all under the blood, as though this means that sin need no longer be taken seriously. The late medieval doctrine of indulgences, against which Luther fought, exacted a financial price for sins. It was a good money-raising idea, but evil theology. Modern Protestant evangelicalism has its own doctrine of indulgences. The sinner has only to say, I'm sorry, and the matter is wiped out. There is no restitution to God and man, no consideration of the seriousness of sin. If we do not release a murderer if he says, I'm sorry, why should words suffice for any other sin? If a man robs us of our money and stands in front of a pastor with the money in his pocket and says, I'm sorry, should he be forgiven and allowed to keep the money? 
Unhappily, civil and criminal courts and church courts seem, at times, too often in fact, ready to overlook restitution. If there is no restitution, there is no repentance, and there can be no forgiveness. Cheap, antinomian forgiveness is anti-Christian to the core because it treats sin as a trifle and shows contempt for God and his law. It is an evil, not a virtue, and none of the insistence of ungodly men in and out of the church can alter that fact. Christ's atonement, his death on the cross, made restitution for the sin of his people. In capital offences, death is required as restitution. Quote, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. End quote from Genesis 9.6 By his law he makes it clear that in our sinning we must repent, confess our sins and make restitution for our offences against one another. From Exodus 22 Without repentance, confession and restitution, men remain past bound, as cultured governed by karma doctrines have been. The sinner is past bound because he has no valid atonement for his sins. He tries, through sadomasochistic activities, to make atonement for his sins, either by punishing others or by punishing himself. Neither strategy works. His sin and the burden of guilt remains. It does more than remain. It becomes a growing factor that wages war on all his being. Because he is sin-bound, he is past-bound. A culture which is not truly Christian may plan grandly for a new world order. It may imagine that all problems are to be solved by its wisdom and it has a great deal of self-admiration. Is there a major country in the world today which does not see itself as the Earth's true centre? Each seeks to direct itself and the world in terms of its ostensibly superior eminence and wisdom. Jotham, from Judges 9.7-21, gives us a parable of the king of the trees. The trees sought to name a king over themselves, but all the useful trees rejected the pro proffered kingship. Only the bramble bush accepted the kingship, and his rule meant tyranny. The nations of our time have made themselves into bramble bush and bushes and tyrannies. They represent not liberation, but slavery. Some of the medieval ru rulers were hard and brutal men, but their readiness to confess their sins and to make some kind of penance gave them a vitality and power lacking in modern leaders. True liberation is from sin unto holiness, and without repentance, confession and restitution there is neither liberation nor holiness. Burkhoff defined the ethical holiness of God as, quote, that perfection of God in virtue of which he eternally wills and maintains his own moral excellence, abhors sin and demands purity in his moral creatures, end quote. Burkhoff said of the manifestation of holiness, quote, the holiness of God is revealed in the moral law, implanted in man's heart, and speaking through the conscience, and more particularly in God's special revelation. It stood out prominently in the law given Israel. That law in all its aspects was calculated to impress upon Israel the idea of the holiness of God, and to urge upon the people the necessity of leading a holy life. 
This was the purpose served by such symbols and types as the holy nation, the holy land, the holy city, the holy place and the holy priesthood. Moreover, it was revealed in the manner in which God rewarded the keeping of the law and visited transgressors, transgressors with dire punishments. The highest revelation of it was given in Jesus Christ, who is called the Holy and Righteous One, in Acts 3.14. He reflected in his life the perfect holiness of God. Finally, the holiness of God is also revealed in the Church as the body of Christ. End quote. Only insofar as the Church is truly the body of Christ does it reveal the holiness of God. Since God's law reveals his moral holiness, to depart from the law of God is to forsake holiness for sin. An antinomian church is thus a false church. Confession and restitution lead to restoration. This restoration has more than one fact. First, it is a restoration of one's relationship to the triune God. Without this restoration, man cannot have peace with God. We have virtually forgotten two once important words, shriven and unshriven. The word shrive comes from the Latin scribo, to write. It has reference to a legal pardon from Almighty God. A shriven soul is a confessed and pardoned man. To be unshriven means that no valid pardon for sin has been secured from Christ through his church. Second, with true confession and restitution, there is a restoration of our relationship with our fellow man, with the one offended and also all who know of the sin. Community again prevails. Confession is closely related to the sacrament of communion in some form, either by personal or by a general confession, we approach Christ's table as forgiven sinners. He who forgave our sins by his atonement requires us to make restitution to one another. Third, the society is restored because unconfessed sins and failures to make restitution damage the relationships between peoples. Instead of community, there is hostility. Fourth, Confession and restitution correct, as far as is humanly possible, past evils and liberate men and communities from the burden of the past into the possibilities of the future. Released from their bondage of the past, men and peoples, nations and churches can then be future-oriented. This is the end of chapter 37. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts, where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.